Hello and welcome to School of Batman. We ask scientists and researchers to use their expertise to help Batman in his quest against crime. I'm your host, Chris Blumson, amateur scientist and professional Batman enthusiast. Fateful tumble into a well as a child started in a young Bruce Wayne, a lifelong chiroptophobia, the fear of bats. This is by no means unique, and Bruce knew this enough to utilise the iconography of bats as a shorthand to instil fear in his enemies, playing on a deep-seated and complicatedly interwoven fear of bats, embedded in folklore with a mix of concerns from the superstitious to the scientific. Where does the truth lie? How did Bruce develop an uneasy alliance with these remarkable creatures? In this special bat appreciation episode, Evie Morris will help dispel some myths and provide some insights from her work. Evie is a postgraduate researcher at the School of Life Sciences at the University of Southampton, specialising in the effects of land use change by looking at the movement and genetics of bats in arid climates. Hi Evie, how are you doing and thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me on. I'm good, how are you? I'm having a great day so far, thank you very much. Um, So yeah, let's dig into um, some of your work really. Let's just start with what you're doing now um, and uh, then we'll maybe talk about how you got to where you are, how you came to to love bats and then look into, into some other aspects. Yeah, for sure. So at the moment I'm in the second year of my PhD work, so... Um, I'm actually just digging into the genetic aspect that you uh, kindly introduced for me. So my work at the moment is focusing on how the diet of bats is changed by land use change. By land use change, I mean when people change a, a natural environment into something else. So often we think of that as like agriculture. So that's kind of where my project is at the moment. I look at the effects of agriculture in deserts and how that is changing the diets of the bats that live there. So the bats live in deserts now, like in what we traditionally think of as a desert, like big sandy dunes and stuff? Yeah, so people think that there's nothing there, um, which is a little a little incorrect. Uh, there's less there, perhaps, in terms of um, numbers of animals, but that, uh, animals do still live in deserts. Um, so yeah, you're thinking sort of sandy dunes, maybe less in the sandy places, but in the rocky places where there are... Um, places for them to roost and there's insects for them to eat the bats are there right okay amazing so what does this actually look like on a day-to-day are you going out to these rocky outcrops in the middle of the desert trying to to capture bats to look at them or is it is it more theoretical or my days change so um this time last year i was actually gearing up to go away on my field work so last summer i spent six months in israel where five days a week i was catching bats in the desert Um, not in the sort of butterfly net way that most people imagine. We actually have really big nets called mist nets, and they kind of work like a fishing net that you string up between two poles, and you kind of just leave that out, uh, usually near a water source or by some vegetation that might attract the bats, and you basically just wait for them to fly into the net. So that's what I was doing, catching bats, 
uh, taking samples from them, taking measurements from them, um, and then I transported all of my samples back from Israel to the UK, and uh, most recently I've been in the lab uh, trying to get the DNA out of those samples. So imagine if you did that in Israel, you probably weren't too far from people uh, when you were doing this kind of thing. Um, how, how did the people living there react to what you were doing? Uh, so the only word I know, well, one of the very few words I know in Hebrew is hatelafim, uh, which means bats, because that is mostly what, um, when people see you catching or setting up these big nets, people do ask a lot of questions. Um, I think most people are surprised and laugh. Um, a lot of people aren't familiar with uh, insectivorous bats. So bats have a, a range of diets. Um, and I work with those that eat insects, or mostly arthropods. But the ones that people see most often, and the bats that people come into contact quite often with, are the fruit bats. Most people, I think, were curious uh, to see what I was doing. A lot of people would hang around and watch. Um, I got a, a lot of people going, do you mind if we stay? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, um, and, and watch me catch bats. Um, so that was quite cool. But I think, yeah, most people are just curious and have never seen a bat that close. On the insectivorous uh, bats that you were talking about, in doing some research for this episode, I came across a fact and I just wanted to run it past you if it's true or not, because it sounds unbelievable that there is a, a, a cave in the US where the bats that live in the cave eat approximately 200 tonnes of insects every night. So there are some really incredible aggregations of bats. Um, one of the best known ones in the southwest of the US, there's really big colonies of Tadarida brasiliensis, um, which is the Mexican free-tailed bat. They eat quite a lot in comparison to their body size, um, just because the process of flying is really energy intensive. You need to build up a lot of energy to be able to have active powered flight. Um, so yeah, they do eat a lot more than you would think from their size, and uh, when that's when that's a sort of 150 million bats, I think were estimated to be in the cave systems um, in the US. That's that's a lot of that's a lot of insects. Yeah, so I mean that this this is something I have not thought of really at all. Is that if you have issues with um, uh, bats being displaced or um, their habitat being destroyed what happens to those 200 tons of insects every day i think that's potentially particularly for the insectivorous bats that's probably one of their um big selling points for conservation um is that they do actually offer quite a service to both people and to general ecosystems so bats are what we call a higher trophic level um, member of the ecosystem. So that means that they eat things that eat things that eat things. There's sort of there's a lot of links of the food chain below them. So they kind of act as a sort of controlling force on the ecosystem. They kind of exert their pressure and keep everything in check. Some relatively back of envelope but still relevant calculations have been done recently, particularly in terms of agricultural pests. Um, so that's one of the things that my research looks at as well as trying to identify whether the bats in the desert are eating any pests, any crop pests, and so that they can be, uh, you can kind of use that to champion them for their conservation. There's been some suggestion that particularly a, a one single colony of big brown bats um, in the States could eat something like 1.3 million pests a year and uh, save the US 
agricultural economy $22.9 billion. Because I remember some very pow- some powerful figures um, being thrown around with the work that bees do um, for uh, pollination and things like that. And if you, if you had to replace some bees with humans and put some figures on that, is is that has the bat community, for want of a better term, looked at maybe some of the some of the lessons and successes from that, and is is trying a similar approach, or it, it, did they both come up in kind of parallel with each other yeah so the idea of uh, valuing ecosystem services isn't particularly new but it's quite a contentious area of work um there's various different ways if you're an economist that you can cost something out um so you can look at how much some a particular service is saving you it is something that people are trying to do more and more with bats um which is sort of why I work like mine where you actually find out what these animals are eating then you can put a better number on what they do um, and theoretically that would help you argue with governments or local stakeholders that this is something that they should be looking after but it's uh, it's a field that's relatively slow growing because it requires that background information on what those actually those those animals are doing what their natural impact is let's take a little step back maybe and and talk about uh, your your journey to where you got to now um is it fair to fair to say that you love bats are you a big bat fan i am a big bat fan i do love them <laughs> so how did you come to love bats what was your what was your journey i suppose i should probably preface it with uh, i i've always felt an affinity for those slightly uh, underrated animals I suppose. I guess I'm the only person watching The Lion King and feeling a little bit bad that everyone's mocking the hyenas. Um, I, do, I do quite like the um, the uh, the underdog in terms of, of people's affections. So I guess I was pretty primed. Um, and when I was doing my undergraduate degree at the University of Bath, I uh, went away with Operation Wallacea, who um, collect longitudinal data sets um, of ecological data from various places around the world and they do that by taking students out and letting us uh, have a crazy field season. Um, So I went out with them to uh, typically uh, Transylvania in Romania. Um, So yes, my love of bats did actually come from Dracula country, which is (laughs) dawning on me as how ridiculous that is. but yes, so we had various uh, ecological surveys that we could take part in, and one of those was bat surveys. And I had never held a, a bat detector before. I'd never seen a bat up close, really. I'd never really thought about bats uh, any more than anybody else, I suppose. Um, but when they put the bat detector in my hand and you can walk through a forest and you can hear the sound of them calling above you and feeding and the way that they're their call gets faster as they get closer and you know that they've um hunt their hunting prey above you and you can't see them there's something quite magical about that and that's something that you can do in just in local towns as well like listeners to the show um i know certainly in london and i'm sure other areas around the country you can do bat tours where people will take you out with these um uh, bat locators through graveyards and things yeah for sure um yeah, um, if you're if you're interested, definitely, especially in the UK, uh, local bat groups will run bat walks as it gets towards the summer. Um, if you're ever sat by the river with a pint in hand, you can watch the bats 
swoop along the river. And how, how would people find like local back groups? Would it just be a case of searching social media or is there a central organisation that people can look through? Most counties have their own uh, back group. Uh, all of them are underwritten by the Back Conservation Trust, which is the national um, sort of governing body of, of bat work and, and bat conservation in the UK. Uh, anyone who's looking for that can go to www.bats.org.uk um, and you can find which bat group will be your local one. And then they'll have either websites or social media pages you can get up to date. Membership's usually not very much either. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about some um, popular kind of misconceptions, myths, fears that um, I've found doing some research. Um, see if any of them are valid, obviously, because sometimes sometimes these things are obviously based in a truth, maybe not the whole truth, um, but it's interesting to look at that kernel of truth behind it. Um, and yeah, just see what we can dispel. Uh, so start with one of the most common ones and I think probably one of the more um, pernicious and dangerous ones is that they're big carriers of disease they're effectively flying disease carriers so how how true is this um, and how how fearful should people be of that okay so this this one's probably one of the more um, gray areas um, so it's true bats do carry disease um, although I have to point out all animals and humans carry disease uh, so they're not unique in this respect um, and in fact they don't give us more disease than they should based on the sort of number of species and the amount of bats there are so we don't actually face a bigger risk of disease from bats than we do from anything else that being said there are some aspects about bats that i think make them potentially more impressive as disease reservoirs and they receive a lot of attention for that. Um, they're also potentially linked to some of our more uh, recent emerging diseases and I think that's that's also probably the thing that's getting them a bit of a rep. Okay so a partial truth on that one. Partially they are very good at holding disease, um, they live a very long time, they have quite interesting colony dynamics which make disease transmission in terms of uh, in their own populations, quite uh, impressive. But actually, the spillover to humans is really, really rare. Um, well, I mean, that brings me on very nicely to uh, my second point, which is they can bite and spread rabies. Uh, this is this is something which came up again and again uh, when looking. So, um, how true is this? Um. This, again, is true. Um, so there are a few species of bats uh, that have been found to carry the rabies disease. This is potentially one that's particularly important in the UK. So in the UK, we've eradicated rabies in almost all other kinds of mammals. So the fact that bats have rabies is quite notable. And I think it's, that's true of a lot of, um, a lot of, of westernised countries particularly that the rabies incidence in feral dogs or in foxes is very very low and therefore the fact that bats potentially are carrying rabies is, is more of a more important more of a shock i suppose to people um but as i said similarly the the, the incidence is quite low actually the number of bats that are tested for rabies is is found to be relatively low, particularly in Europe. Um, in Europe, there's been 
almost a thousand cases in the sort of 40 years between 1977 and 2010. So there aren't many cases. Um, And I think the important thing, again, is that you have to get close enough and be doing something nasty enough to a bat that it wants to bite you. So the chances of getting rabies, unless you are, like myself, putting yourself in a situation where you regularly handle bats, it's almost impossible (laughs) to get unless you tried. And and again, you've beautifully set me up from point number three, uh, which is that they're hostile and actively try to attack people. Yeah, so this is this is one that's not grey in any way. This is simply not true. Um, (laughs) Bats, much like most other animals, will try and avoid you um, as a person. You're quite big. Bats are quite small. They don't want to be anywhere near you (laughs) Um, unless you are grabbing them. And when, in, and I think in that case, it's well within its rights to bite you, um, <laughs> if, if you're bothering it. I, I would be on the on the side of the bat there. Um, this next one that came up, I've never heard of before, but it came up again and again in multiple places. So I, I don't. This may be based in, on something. Is that they they try and nest in your hair as a woman? I love this. This is one of my favourite strange misconceptions because they just they don't in any way so i did a bit of research on this myself because i hear it frequently um and i've never really thought about it much before my first issue with it is that bats don't make nests um bats roost uh in in caves often free hanging so they would never want to make a nest in your hair or in anything else um for that matter but i did find um a really cracking article from 1992 from Bat Conservation International's Bats magazine. Um, It was written by a gentleman called McCracken. So he had a lot to say about where um, the hair nesting myth comes from. And apparently it's pervasive the world over. There are some excellent little tidbits that I found. Um, I will just uh, find a couple of you. Apparently in some places it's believed that wearing white increases your attractiveness to bats and makes them want to fly in towards your hair. Um, some people say that once the bat is in the hair, it will never let go and you'll have to cut off all of your hair. Or worse, it will stay there until it's driven out by thunder and lightning. None of these are true. Um, so I think the the conclusion is that people are concerned that they are going for uh, women's hair when they're just swooping for insects near people's heads. Um, so I think for a start, bats are a lot more agile than we're giving them credit for. They can, they can detect your head and they know where it is and they know how close they can fly to your head. So I think we, we assume that they are getting a lot closer than they are in the same way that if you go swimming and you catch the, catch the sight of a jellyfish in the sea, when you get back to your friends on the beach, the jellyfish was huge and it had these huge stingers. And I think the same thing happens with bats, you know, it flew really close to my hair. It was almost in it. Um, Is that because insects are more likely to be closer to a human? Um, I think there are situations in which people find themselves with bats flying around their heads. Um, potentially, yes. So if you were to walk through a field um, on an, an, a nice evening, when you walk through, you're going to kick up insects. They're going to be around you. When people are sat out by the water, perhaps you're attracting mosquitoes. And people also have a habit of sitting near bright lights, which also will attract insects so you'll get those bats that aren't scared of the lights and they're just happy to swoop in and out of there catching dinner on the easy 
and uh, people think they're going for them. <laughs> um, so I've got a few I'm going to bunch up together here because uh, they're kind of connected. So uh, f- first one is they're all blind and then they all use sonar as well. Another two easy ones for me. Uh, they're blind, again, simply not true. I think we assume because they're nocturnal, they therefore just don't need their eyes. Um, and so why would they have them? Um which, again, just, that's not true. Bats actually have relatively good eyesight. Um, they don't need to make use of it as much because, as I said, they are flying at night. Um, but they would use it for seeing their friends, making their way around their roost, things like that. And, yeah, as I, said, I think they people assume they're blind because that's not their primary sense. So when we talk about people's primary sense is sight, we do most of our um, perceiving of the world through our vision. And for bats, that's mostly not the case. So the majority of bats do echolocate, um, which is the sciencey word for for using the natural equivalent of sonar. Right. So uh, there's are any black bats blind? Not naturally blind. Um, some have better eyesight than others, um, but as far as I'm aware, and I'm willing to be corrected, there are no naturally blind bats. <laughs> So you, you said that the echolocation is the is the primary uh, source of kind of input and understanding of, of the world. How how do you know that? Is that is that something that you? I mean, I'm, is that something that you have analysed through like bat brains or like how how did that how did that work? How do you come to that? There's an experiment done by an Italian scientist in the 1700s whose name upsettingly escapes me, um, and they actually did an experiment where they blinded bats. <laughs> Um, it was the 1700s, so it was a long time ago, and they actually blinded the bats on purpose uh, to see if they could still fly. And they could still fly, and they could avoid objects, and they could still successfully hunt. So it was kind of assumed that they no longer need, they did not need their vision. They weren't relying on that. Um, and I think it then took a few more years before another scientist put wax in the ears of bats and then let them fly and they couldn't and they would they'd bump into the walls and they were useless um, and it was kind of deduced that they were somehow reliant on their ears to perceive the objects around them. Um, it then took significantly longer again to work out exactly how they were doing that but it's been known for a very long time that bats aren't relying on, on their eyes when they fly. So our, our next one, all bats are nocturnal, is that true? Not exactly. <laughs> so most bats are nocturnal, but uh, there is at least one uh, species of bat that's known to fly in the day. So Rhinolophus lepidus, or Blythe's horseshoe bat, um, lives in on Tiaman Island, which is a Malaysian island. And these bats have been found flying in both the day and the night. Um, which is interesting, they didn't just swap to, to flying in the day, they, they fly all the time. Um, and the hypothesis at the moment is that there aren't any uh, day flying bird predators on this island, so there's just, they naturally don't occur there. And they think that the bats basically at this point can just risk going out in the day because they're not in any danger from predators. So that's the only one that I know of that, that chooses to fly in the day. And the final one, which I'm sure is your favourite one, is that they suck people's blood. So, again, uh, it's not entirely false. There are three genuine uh, species of vampire bats. Uh, they all occur, occur in Central or South America, though. So, um, 
not faced with those on a regular basis. They do uh, drink blood. Uh, they are hematophages, but they are very unlikely to suck the blood of a person unless you happened to sleep outside quite regularly in a place where there was no other more convenient food source than you. You might wake up with a vampire bat on your toe and there have been reports of this happening, um, but it's pretty unlikely. Uh, for a start, of the three species of vampire bats that exist, uh, only one of those goes for mammals exclusively. Uh, the other two prefer to feed on birds. That's all for today in our very special bat appreciation episode. Hopefully you've come away with a little bit more of appreciation for our bat friends for listening. Thanks to Evie for joining us. Thanks for having me. You can find out more about Evie's research on Twitter at Evie J. Morris, and the link for that will be in the description. If you'd like to be a future guest on the podcast, please email us at info at figshare.com. And you can find us on Twitter at School of Batman.